Hello, my dear listeners, ladies and gentlemen, have some exciting news, exciting update. The folks at Bioptimizers have truly outdone themselves with this new and improved formula for magnesium breakthrough. The best magnesium supplement on the market just got even better because it now contains cofactors like vitamin B6 and manganese to improve the bioavailability of magnesium. So for those of you who don't know what bioavailability means, it means that what you're introducing to your body is actually getting used up in a functional way to give you the effects that you're looking for. And with a lot of magnesium supplements, you don't have very good bioavailability. And on top of that, you only have one species of magnesium. Bioptimizers has seven different species of magnesium to support over 80% of your body's metabolic reactions, which are thousands. And now you really get to capitalize on all the incredible benefits of magnesium supplementation because we simply don't get enough through our diets nowadays. And if you want to learn more about that, by the way, tune into episode number 56 of my podcast with Wade Lightheart, one of the co-founders of Bioptimizers to learn more. So for folks who are looking to support their health and wellness and manage stress, uh, reduce anxiety, support a nice, calm, stable mood, get deeper, more restorative sleep, support tremendous energy throughout the day, I highly recommend that you take magnesium magnesium breakthrough that is, on a daily basis. If I had to choose one supplement to take for the rest of my life, every single day, it would be this one. I managed to get everything else that I need through my diet, all my macro and micronutrients, but because of the soil that we have today, we simply don't get the magnesium that we're supposed to be getting. And with our modern environments, it really helps to get enough magnesium. So I always like to go with the best, the purest, the safest, and the most bioavailable, which is why I choose magnesium breakthrough. So if you want to get your hands on some of this amazing, amazing stuff, go to magbreakthrough.com slash undress. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash undress, magbreakthrough.com slash undress, and use code undress, A-N-D-R-E-S, during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping or simply scroll down to the show notes section of this episode on the preferred platform that you're currently tuning in from, and you'll see a link directly to checkout, which you can use right now before we start the show. Oh, and dare I mention that this is an incredible gift for your friends, family, and loved ones because it shows them that their health and wellness is in your best interest? Yes, it's true. In fact, I have my family set up on automatic deliveries on a monthly basis, on my mother's credit card because it's really the intention that counts. And you too can be intentional with your gift by giving the gift of Magnesium Breakthrough. So anyway, go ahead and use code UNDRESS at checkout magbreakthrough.com slash undress. Hope that you guys enjoy. And now let's go ahead and get started with the show. There we go. So we are here with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, aka the doc who lifts. Spencer is a physician who pushes lifestyle before pharmaceuticals to show you how you can lose fat, build muscle, lower your blood sugar, and feel great. His goal is to make you leaner, more energetic, healthier, and most importantly, happier. And as an undergraduate at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, he studied exercise science and pre-med while wrestling D1 in the heavyweight class. He then went on to pursue a medical degree at Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine to spread the idea of nutrition and exercise as medicine. His residency training was done through the VCU Riverside Family Medicine Program in Newport News, where he was able to hone in his skills further. And finally, he studied and specialized in obesity medicine, lipidology, and memeology, <laughs> and serves as chief physician for RP Strength. People call him the doc who lifts because he's extremely passionate about using exercise as medicine and because he actually works out a lot himself. He truly, really does lift. So Spencer, welcome to the show. This is the Know Your Physio show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, buddy. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you. And one of the first few things I want to discuss is memes. Why are you so into memes? Yeah, they can take a somewhat of a broad... Well, not a broad, a, a complex subject, I should say, and then grab attention, simplify it. And of course, it can't explain the nuances and complexities, whatever, of a, a complex topic. But 
it can at least grab some attention, make some people laugh to where then a caption can make the difference between understanding it and not understanding it. So it's, it's more my style of, of communicating anyway, because I'm, I'm a pretty jovial person. I'm not, you know, I used to, I started off making infographics, which grew my audience pretty well back in whatever, 2016. But then there became a point where I was like, you know, it's not really my, it's not actually the way I am in real life. I'm, I'm much more goofy. Uh, so I was <laughs> like, you know what? I could, I could probably make memes and I can dabble. They weren't very good at first. You know, sometimes I was finding memes that I thought were funny that I use and people liked them. And I was like, I think I could practice at this. So then I started practicing and I found certain things that get people going versus not. The more scientific and more like, <laughs> the more ironically like straight up truth it is, it doesn't get, if it's vanilla, it doesn't get many likes. Like if it's, if it's too um, like, ah, uh-huh, that's kind of funny. But if it's like, a little bit egregious, a little bit divisive, almost. It gets a lot more. And then the key is the caption because, you know, so I make fun of keto diets a lot, even though like people get so mad and I don't make fun of vegan diets too much because they get vicious. So like, I just kind of stay away from that. But sometimes I do. And then I turn off my phone because I can't, I don't want to see the comments. Like for example, I make fun <laughs> of keto diets and it's just funny. It's just hilarious. But some people do get upset. But the people that agree will come and be like, ah, ha, ha. And then the people that disagree or love the keto diet who don't know my style. I, I actually have a lot of followers who know that I'm just joking and they're in my DMs and we laugh about it all the time. But the people that don't really know, they get so upset and just start being like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I just, it's just a funny meme. Like sometimes I just do things for fun, not even to explain anything. But I think yeah, that, that's, 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 that's the reason memes. why I do the memes. I mean, I think that in the in the right hands, you know, prepared by by the right person, it's a really it's a modern solution for making the science more accessible. I mean, it does draw people in and create this sense of curiosity while definitely sort of softening the material because people can get very dogmatic about science and about their diets and about mm-hmm. lifestyle. And I think it's just a way to and you can appreciate it for what it is, you know. And at the end of the day, I think that you're able to reach more people because it's a softer approach, but at the same time, you read the caption and it is based in science and you're a very credible person. So I do appreciate what you're doing in the meme world. Thank you. And one Thank thing you. I want to ask you is what's your overwhelming mission? It's, you know, to help people is kind of cliche. Right. It's, it's just kind of to spread this idea of lifestyle as medicine. And I know there are a lot of people that actually push back on that because they think it's not medicine. It's just lifestyle should be the crux of you know, everybody trying to prevent and reverse or put into remission their chronic disease. So like a memory came up from however many years ago that I said, like, if everybody worked out, lifted weights three or four times a week and was physically active on the other days and ate a certain way of eating, chronic disease would just, it would barely exist other than in those who are unfortunate enough that just, it didn't matter what they were going to do. So like, for example, you know, someone who's going to get cancer due to some mutation or, or other, you know, unfortunate autoimmune inflammatory diseases that it just lifestyle just didn't change the trajectory. It was going to happen anyway. But like type 2 diabetes and hypertension, a lot of that stuff would just be minimized. And so my mission would basically to be to spread that way of living in a humorous way. Of course, we all want to make money. I have a, it's it's tied into business and whatever like that. So it's my way of making a living as well. But I have fun doing it, and it's it's fulfilling compared to only being in a clinic and just kind of seeing thirty patients a day. So I don't I don't do that anymore because of the way it's structured. I mean, I, I recently learned that you're actually able to do all of your work remotely, which is really nice. Yeah. I'm in the um, cloud, anyone in the man. world can access you. What's that? I'm all in the cloud, man. It's all- <laughs> And, you know, I think it's, it's sort of in a way ironic that a lot of doctors who are, you know, healthcare pros, right? They're very unhealthy. They take Mm -hmm. on very unhealthy uh, lifestyles. And, and I just want to preface this with, they tend to put themselves before others. And I understand that. And I Mm -hmm. see that. And I know that being a doctor can be a very challenging career. In fact, there's a lot of people in my family, my dad, my mom, my grandparents who are physicians and and they really do put others before themselves in a very honest way. And it takes away from their own health sometimes. But I think that you really have to walk the walk. And that's what I really admire about you and about your mission is not only do you want to inspire others to approach their health 
through lifestyle and exercise to really better themselves. But you're also inspiring a lot of doctors and healthcare professionals as well, because you can know all the theory, but unless you really apply that theory for yourself, you know, that speaks volumes, at least in my book. And so I really admire your ability to do all of that and find that balance for yourself. It's really amazing. I do applaud you for that. It's really, really incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why I feel like you have to put your own health as a priority because otherwise you won't be able to take care of other people if you don't. So I, I don't know. Well, one thing I believe is that if you try to invest in yourself to be a better version of yourself for others, it oftentimes leads to being the best version of yourself for you. Right. And so I understand now that it really takes some degree of selfishness to be selfless. And that's something that I really see in you. So one thing that I wanted to uh, dive into with you is actually how exercise influences insulin sensitivity and, and peeling back the layers of those physiological mechanisms. So if you want to give sort of a, you know, starting from the very, very simple and basic to the more scientific, and we can go back and forth, but if you can help my audience understand exactly how that's going to help them prevent things like type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, cardiometabolic syndrome, fatty liver, et cetera, how does that all tie into insulin sensitivity and what can we do about our lifestyle and exercise to prevent that? Yeah. So we had a good analogy or my brother and I kind of came up with this analogy and I'm sure other people have had similar analogies, but in a normal, healthy, lean individual with good insulin sensitivity, you eat some sort of form of carbohydrate, whether it's sugar, starch, starch for people listening, basically sugar connected to each other. You eat it, it all forms into glucose at some point and gets into your blood stream. Your, your pancreas releases insulin. The insulin acts almost like a key of some sort. And we talk about these sugar trucks that are in not only our fat cells, but also our muscles as well. I'm sure you've talked about GLUT4 and these transporters that help shuttle in the, the glucose into the cells to, to be used. Well, in a normal insulin-sensitive person, when you eat the carbohydrate, gets in your blood, the insulin's like a key, it goes to the sugar trucks that are in your cells, turns it on, they come out and grab the sugar. That's such a simplistic way of explaining it, but there's much more to it. But it's, sim it's simple enough and it makes, makes enough sense. I think it's a good enough analogy. So while in somebody's insulin resistant, you know, I, we could say their batteries are dead in the insulin truck. The, the key goes in maybe, the truck doesn't come out. The, the glucose sugar sits in your blood for longer periods of time. It doesn't as easily. Some, maybe some trucks come out. You just thought they don't come out as well. Maybe some of them have flat tires. I don't know. Somehow that's, that's their analogy, right? So the reason that happens is, well, there's, there's multiple things that go on with insulin sensitivity. But one of the things, especially as an obesity physician, it's this adiposity. And it's the adiposity specifically that's more around our organs, the visceral adiposity, the stuff that you can not pinch. The stuff you can pinch is subcutaneous. The stuff you can't pinch is, is visceral around our organs and specifically maybe around our liver and our pancreas and things like that to where our pancreas isn't even producing as much insulin anymore due to that. And also because where that fat is around the liver, the fatty acids get there and, and, and start circulating more readily throughout our body, which decreases sensitivity in our cells. And things like that. And then there's hormones that can be released from this fat as well, the adipokines that people talk about. So the thing is with exercise, from an acute standpoint, meaning right at the time you exercise, so somebody could be insulin resistant, let's say they have a lot of belly fat, visceral adiposity, we say they're, you can see some of their markers or maybe they have prediabetes or maybe they don't, but their fasting insulin is pretty high. They have a bunch of belly fat, their triglycerides are a little bit high, and their HDL is a little bit low. You know they're insulin resistant. Well, acutely, from a metabolic standpoint, if somebody exercises, whether they go for a run or they do some sort of weight training session, the analogy would be that, hey, you can the, the battery's dead, you jumpstart the car right then and there. Glucose is able to be disposed of acutely during and post-exercise. So that's one mechanism. Another mechanism is obviously over time, we would hope that the exercise along with diet would help decrease this visceral abdominal adiposity, which then over time would 
improve the insulin resistance overall, as opposed to just chronically, as opposed to acutely. That's kind of the gist. Whether the mechanism, the mechanisms are kind of interesting, but like GLUT4 is expressed acutely after exercise. So that way you're able to transport the glucose into the cells post-exercise. Personally, for me, that would mean I would like people to do both aerobic and resistance training because even resistance training chronically too, if you have more muscle, and technically you have more areas to dispose of the glucose. That's what I would I, like. Again, I think this is, it's hard to study from a, it, resistance training is not an easy endeavor. You'd have to study this at long periods of time. The plausibility makes a lot more sense. Somebody with more muscle that uses it more often has more insulin sensitivity in general when you look at the studies and from a mechanistic standpoint, they have more muscle and I, likely that helps them have less visceral adiposity, but acutely when they exercise, they'll have more places to dispose of the, the, the glucose. And that's the kind of the gist. And so that's why I'm like, look, everything from a metabolic health standpoint revolves around insulin sensitivity. So all these metabolic diseases that are related to obesity are due to that specific adiposity, whether it's hypertension, dyslipidemia, blood sugar regulation, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, all those things are related to that. So that's why I think it's a good idea to exercise and have more muscle. <laughs> you know, I recently, I forgot where I heard of this and please feel free to jump in. I, I believe, well, you're definitely going to be a little more familiar with the underlying physiology in this case, but I was in, in one of my classes the other day and someone said something about you know, when you consume these processed foods and they make their way down the small intestine, which is right up against the pancreas, if they're highly processed and that beginning section of, I believe it's the small intestine, sort of understands, it gets the impression that you're eating something very calorically dense. And so that's when you really start to hyperproduce the insulin. It's the first bit of that processed food that makes its way down the small intestine. And that's one of the reasons why you overproduce insulin and then therefore decrease your insulin sensitivity. Can you maybe describe that mechanism. I just, the, the intention there is I want people to understand why you hyperproduce insulin when you consume these processed foods beyond the, the yeah. obvious spike in blood sugar. Yeah. Part of it is, you know, there's the glycemic index, how quickly you actually just digest these foods. So the other thing that plays a role too is the incretin effect. I don't know if you know what that is, but the incretin effect is basically when they did these studies, they looked at, it was like the 50s, they did this. They looked at whether you inject glucose straight into your, into your veins versus ingesting glucose. And they thought, and I would think too, I think most people think this, if you injected it straight to the veins, boom, it's going straight to the pancreas, the insulin is going to go the highest. Well, they found out that actually when you ingested the glucose, it went higher. And what they called it was the incretin effect, intestinal secretion of insulin. They thought something had to do with the, the intestines. Well, over the years, some really smart researchers found out that there are multiple incretins, one of them being that glucagon-like peptide one, GLP-1, you may have heard that term, but a lot of those are in um, those cells that release in these L cells and release this GLP-1. So that partly, it, it's a little bit more complex than just hitting that first part, which is the duodenum. There's the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum of the, of the small intestine. Part of it's that, but also how, just how fast these things are digested. If you have a whole unprocessed, it just takes longer to digest and, and break apart all these foodstuffs. You know? So the insulin is released more slowly and it really has a chance to sort of match the food that you're consuming. Yeah. So, and, and the thing is though, even if you have a higher insulin response, it doesn't necessarily equal more adiposity. So that's the issue. So that's, that's where this whole idea of a carb, the heart carbohydrate insulin model of obesity came from medical school. You learn insulin is a fat storing hormone. Okay. So then if we assume that, then we want to keep our insulin as low as possible. We don't want to release any insulin. The thing is, insulin is also anabolic for muscle too. And so it's not, well, so anyway, they've done these studies in metabolic wards very rigorously where they've matched the calories for calories and the protein, and then they switch these the carbohydrates and the fat percentages. And you can see with a very high fat, 
low carb diet and matched protein versus a higher carb diet, low fat matched protein. The ketogenic diet or the low carb diet, the insulin's very low. And whereas the high carb, low fat, the insulin's much higher. And they find that it doesn't matter for fat loss or fat storage and all these different things. So I probably wouldn't even focus on the insulin part of it. I would focus on more how the processed foods are just easily more readily overeaten. In fact, I'm, I'm doing a project of mine trying to teach people how to understand this. But basically, forget the insulin response and the glycemic response. Unless you're a type 2, if you have type 2 diabetes, there can be small differences that make up differences in maybe your total glycemia during the day. But like for pure body composition, I wouldn't even think about the insulin response because of what I was talking about, the GLP differences and, and all sorts of differences with insulin and how it doesn't necessarily, from a physiological standpoint, doesn't reflect on body composition. Now, injecting insulin and things like that may have an effect, of course, but uh, again, that's, that's a little bit more complicated. But I would think of if, if it's the, the higher processed foods, yeah, they may have a higher insulin response due to being digested quicker. However, that doesn't necessarily mean more body fat gain. It means you're probably going to overeat these foods more readily than more whole unprocessed foods. Does that make sense? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So I had, a, yeah, I had a question for you. What are your thoughts on healthy individuals who exercise taking metformin or people who just really don't fit the criteria, the traditional criteria, at least on taking metformin? Yeah, I do prescribe metformin for people who are interested in it from a hypothetical standpoint for longevity. Honestly, I think this whole longevity thing is, how, how would I say, it's, it's um, not a farce, but it's a lot of hypothesis generating BS because you're going to have to live a lifetime to even figure out if this hypothesis is, is true. Right. So a lot of people that are making a lot of money right now promoting this type of stuff what do they have to lose? You're not going to know. Nobody's going to know. <laughs> Nobody's going to have any data. It's all hypothesis. I mean, it's, it's such a great scam. It's so smart too. I wish I could lose a few scruples to get into it, but I, I can't just because it's just like, how do you know? The, the mechanistic studies from using metformin and those who are very healthy and, and exercise, there are some possible adaptations that occur that are actual, look like they're detrimental from using metformin. So personally, I wouldn't use metformin unless... I had to. It seems to be that you would want to use it in, in somebody that may not exercise too much or not able to, who you want to help with their glycemia. But I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't use it. What I would probably use a statin before I use a, a metformin or something like that. That's interesting what you said about the longevity. I, I, I totally agree, by the way, that with a lot of these protocols people are using, a lot of this, these articles and products and services. It's BS because you really do need to live the rest of your life to see how it plays out. Yeah. And then, but I don't know if you, if you noticed a recent study that showed how an eight-week protocol can reverse DNA age by three years and eight weeks. And what they did was really just lifestyle medicine, uh, lifestyle protocols. You know, there was an exercise program where the subject exercised, I believe it was between 60 and 80% of their maximum perceived effort for four or five days a week. They had eight hours of sleep. They ate all kinds of superfoods. And yeah, you know, they looked at their DNA methylation and they were able to essentially reverse that DNA age by three years and eight weeks. I think I saw that one. Yeah. I mean, this is where like from a practicality standpoint, these are things that we know are good to do. Freaking exercise as much as you can from a recovery standpoint and practical standpoint to a point. I mean, of course, it, there, there is a point where it could be detrimental, but that that's like Ironman exercisers. I'm talking about like an hour a day at the most. But yeah, eat lots of plants, high uh, phytonutrient plants and stay lean, get your sleep. I know that you're training for a triathlon, right? And I think that one thing I want to I note there is people who train for these ultra endurance events and just competition in general, you know, you can overtrain and you see things like C-reactive protein damaging the heart and liver, that kind of thing. And I want to ask, what kind of approach are you taking for your uh, triathlon preparation? And what do you think more people should consider before they approach this kind of competitive sport to maintain their health because overtraining is definitely a thing. And I've even experienced it for myself. 
Yeah. So I, I did my tra I did a triathlon. I probably won't do another one cause I'm not great at swimming and it felt like I was drowning because of the open water and it was cold. However, I do like cross training, lots of lifting and aerobic training. So I already did the triathlon and what I would recommend, first of all, if you don't know what you're doing, please get a coach. If you can afford one, that's what I would do. <laughs> Number one. Number two, I would start with a sprint triathlon. Don't what I'm doing in September. Don't go in and try and try to do even a regular size one. And then sure as hell don't do an Ironman. I, I would recommend unless you have lots of time, and you know what you're doing, but that's what I would do. I think training for a sprint triathlon is great because like the amount of exercise is right where you see that most improvement in mortality and longevity is right around the amount of training you would need to do that. And I'd still recommend lifting weights at the same time. The goal is to make sure you're recovering as much as possible. You may have to actually eat more. You don't want to try to lose weight while doing this because you may not have enough fuel to train. So I have a picture of, it's really funny. I did a bodybuilding competition before the year before I did the triathlon. And you can see that I'm, I gain about 10 pounds and I'm not that, I don't have that much more fat on my body. So you can see I'm, I'm I was like starving myself for a bodybuilding competition. And then I trained for a triathlon, so much exercise volume. And I, I wish I could do that much volume. Now I did, I have time constraints that don't allow me to, but I gained muscle and just and I was eating ad libitum, meaning like I was eating as much as possible. Every night I had to eat freaking cupcakes and ice cream because otherwise I couldn't get enough into my body. Wouldn't recommend that, of course, but uh, I, I would make sure you're eating enough. Make sure you go slowly. Ramp yourself up. Don't start freaking running miles and miles and swimming and swimming and biking right in the beginning. Just start very slow. Pick a time like six months or 12 months in advance that, and just start slowly working your way up to it. And of course, get a coach if you can. That's what I would recommend. That's where I sort of, in, in some instances, I see the case for maybe some degree of processing in the foods that you eat, considering that you're burning so many calories and your sensitivity goes so high. And there's a need for carbohydrate, right? To be the ultimate fuel for this kind of event where if you consume whole foods, you can't always replenish, right? Because yeah. traditional so carbohydrates in nature have, yeah, they're so filling They have this immense water volume fiber and it's difficult to get enough to replenish the glycogen stores. And you do this kind of event, especially when you're training every single day for months to get where you want to be. Yeah. Something I want to review with you, actually, there's a few, <laughs> there's a few tweets that I've screenshotted. You make some good points in, in these tweets and I, and I sort of want to dissect what you mean in, in some of them, if that's all right with you, I'll pull them sure. up right now. So the first one is people shaming me for eating Kraft macaroni and cheese once in a while is all you need to know about the health and wellness industry. Can yeah. you uh, yeah, yeah. So a little more I, about I, that? I made a post gosh, a few years ago that basically I wanted to use what I think most people eat. They eat, you know, vegetables may have some green beans for dinner for their vegetables, which you know, some might say is not optimal. Maybe you want some more green leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, whatever. But like a lot of people might go, I, I'm going to start trying to eat more vegetables. They're eating green beans. So I had a picture of some, a portion of green beans. And then I have a couple portions of what most people add on their plate for macaroni and cheese. I think normal people probably eat Kraft macaroni and cheese because they have kids and for some reason their kids love it. So I showed a picture of that and I go, so if you're trying to improve from there, maybe cut the macaroni and cheese in half and then double your green beans. Well, I'll never forget the, the their comments on there. Like, I cannot believe you would put that chemical garbage into your body. And I was just like, yeah, see, none of these people actually work with anybody real because I can tell you in the general clinic, general family medicine or internal medicine clinic, if someone came in and was tried to tell them you need to eat this organic quinoa, blah, 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 they would never change because it just, you don't need to do that. Number one, of course. Number two, that's just such a big change that most people wouldn't even be willing to do it. So if all you say is like, hey man, you're doing a good job, especially, hey, you look, it looks like you're trying to eat more vegetables and they're stalled and maybe, hey, let's start even adding more of those vegetables and we'll cut some of these other foods that are higher in calorie out. That's it. And so it's just, the health and wellness industry, a lot of elitists with what they eat, 
and they need to come down to the real world. I, and I'd be like, look, you're not even ripped anyway. And you're not even a good performer. Why are you even worrying about it? like, I just want to be like, you're, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> like, get out of here. Like that's, that's, it's these people that think they're so good and they don't, they clearly don't work with anybody real, but it's like that garbage. What, what, what garbage? Oh, cause you can't read some of the ingredients on the powdered cheese. Get out of here. Whatever. I think this is a good transition to this next point that you've made uh, Well, tweet that really stood out to me and it's obesity isn't a choice. Can you yeah. talk a little more about, uh, yeah, uh, I've clarified it even further cause it's so funny. The comments that people put on there when I say obesity isn't a choice. They're like, are you kidding me? People choose what they eat in that very fleeting moment where they're anybody who's out there. First of all, obesity takes years and years and years. It doesn't happen overnight. Years, years of chronically overeating, whether they know it or they don't. In the fleeting moment where they're choosing a meal, they're not choosing whether they want obesity or not. They're choosing what tastes good. Simply that, not thinking much further than that. They may have an understanding that, eh, it's maybe not the healthiest for me, but whatever, I want this because it tastes good. They're not choosing to have obesity at that moment. So then some people point out like, yeah, but there becomes a point though, where they then realize that they have obesity, they're diagnosed by their doctor, or they can just look in the mirror and they see their weight, blah, 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 blah. And aren't they still choosing obesity then? It's a good question. This is where, yes, you can choose to at least attempt to lose weight and you can attempt. I won't say that you're going to choose your weight because unfortunately, as you gain weight over periods of time, people tend to, it seems to be that they have what's called a set point reset. It seems like our bodies then fight to hold on to that weight. So then even if you attempt to try to lose the weight, our bodies can fight pretty hard to keep on that weight. So that's why I say attempt because I'm not going to say somebody, people with obesity, there's nobody, I don't know anybody with obesity other than maybe linemen in the NFL and sumo wrestlers who choose to have obesity. Most people that have obesity go, I hate having this obesity and I've tried so much. I'm just miserable trying to lose weight. If they could all choose, they would choose not to have it. So it's not a choice. They have choices for the foods that they eat and the amount of movement and whatever that they do. But the choosing having obesity or not is much more complex. And I know there's, there's still people that don't, they still couldn't grasp that, but they're not thinking this through too well. It's, it's, it's a choice of what to eat at that moment. And then let's say they choose, okay, fine. I'm going to try to try to eat something healthier. We subconsciously may even eat more. If, if people have obesity, the appetite centers can be a little bit different than somebody who doesn't have obesity, who's lean. And they may subconsciously eat bigger portions despite choosing to eat something they think is a little bit healthier, say like chicken and broccoli and whatever. So anyway, it's a very complex thing. Nobody chooses to have or not have obesity unless they're sumo wrestlers or linemen. And then people can choose to then do something about it. But whether they will be successful, I, I can't say for sure. Yeah, there's a, a graph. It's, it's some some study, I forget who it's by, the title of the study, I'm sure you've seen it. And it just shows this graph with like 50 different nodes, things that are essentially mechanisms involved in obesity and just how complex it is. And, and one thing that I, that I want to mention, I, uh, you touched upon this is the body weight set point, right? So when someone starts to overconsume calories over the years, they see an increase in their triglycerides and this can interfere with leptin, for example. And so it creates this vicious cycle of obesity right? Because you don't have the same mechanisms controlling your body weight set point. And so you're overconsuming, overconsuming, decreasing your leptin sensitivity. And it becomes much, much harder progressively to opt out of this cycle. And it becomes more difficult to make that choice, and that decision when you have a plate of food in front of you and you're hungry. So that's really, really fascinating. And I think that, you know, in fact, people who believe that it's a choice, I mean, just have to show them this graph, you know, and say nothing else. And it's just such a complex topic. Now, there's a few other uh, tweets that I think would be great to dive into just for the, the benefit of my audience. There's, <laughs> this is really funny. There's a picture of, uh, I think it's like one of those ice cream lollipops with the little yellow bird. I don't know the, the, the name of the cartoon. Tweety bird. <laughs> Tweety bird. <laughs> and it says on one side, it's the, just the package, right? It's this beautiful picture of the little bird and it says keto expectation. And then next to it, keto reality. 
and it's the picture of the ice cream lollipop, and it's all just completely <laughs> not matching the yeah, melted the, down or yeah. whatever deformed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, basically, I want to get your thoughts on on keto. <laughs> so here's the problem. I think ketogenic diets can be an absolutely therapeutic diet for certain individuals, specifically those with epilepsy who, who can't get control through drugs and type 2 diabetes can be for certain individuals. The thing is, the hypesters out there, the charlatans, the, the pseudoscientists, the ones that are hyping this up, the pop culture, pop science folks, they're the ones doing it the most disservice because what they're doing is hyping up the ketogenic diet to where it seems like it's magical. It seems like you're going to ride this unicorn over the rainbow and you're going to be in this amazing world of ultimate fat burning without being miserable. It's, 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 just a cl- it's just classic. They all say the same kind of thing. And then your hormones and this and whatever. The thing is, uh, most people do it and they're going to fail, just like any other diet, mind you. However, most people are going to feel like shit doing it. At least in the beginning, they talk about, yeah, you can be adapted. I've done it. I felt okay after a couple of weeks, but like most people are not going to want to skip out on carbs for no reason, no real reason for the rest of their lives. And they're deprived of foods that are inherently healthy, helpful, and they're skipping it for no reason because they don't have to. Now, if you have uncontrolled type 2 diabetes, your pancreas is burned out and it's the only way to get glycemic control without taking medicines, fine. That makes sense to me or epilepsy, but for other people, there's just no reason. So a lot of people are just going to feel like crap on it. Yeah, there's little things, you, little tweaks you can do. You can take extra electrolytes because of the fluid volume changes and, and different things like that. But And it's fine. You can see the comments. Yep, I've tried it. Yep, that was kind of like me. And then other people are like, no, but I felt fine on it. And I, I agree. They're, they're, if A lot of people will feel okay on it too. But it was just a good enough to get a good conversation going to where like, hey, you expect it to be this magical experience and in fact it wasn't right i think a lot of people another hypester that made it seem and i think a lot of people perhaps you'll agree it what really sort of gets them interested in keto is maybe they have a friend who who attempts keto for a week or two and and immediately you lose all this weight but it's water weight because of glycogen depletion right you're not getting the same carbs in your diet you use the stored glycogen in your Mm -hmm. muscle you lose the water weight associated for every gram of glycogen. We store about 500 in the body. There's three and a half grams of water associated. Boom, you lost a ton of water weight. And now you think keto is this amazing, amazing diet. But you do it for a few more weeks and you can have things like hair loss and women can have issues with their period, especially if they combine it with intermittent fasting. And there's just a plethora of things that can arise a few weeks to a month later. And I personally think that it can be a way to accelerate fasting in the beginning. I mean, if you look at the effects that it can have a metabolic flexibility in some cases, and maybe in some instances you can make that argument. But I think that overall, long-term, it's not a favorable diet, especially if you have the intention to maintain or gain muscle because you want that glycogen to replenish in the muscle to build and perform the way you want to. So yeah, it's really a fascinating thing. And I understand that the hype is really doing a disservice. I completely, completely agree that it's it's a shame. Now, a couple more things. I want this, this one's so this one, uh, I did want to discuss biohacking with you. And this is a funny tweet. So another patient, this is, this is uh, on your Twitter. Another patient stopped putting butter and coconut oil in their coffee. Result, they lost eight pounds of mostly belly fat and their LDL particles dropped by 400. Their energy increased as well. So I want to ask your thoughts on biohacking, number one, because the buttered coffee is definitely big in the biohacking sphere. And uh, number two... The obsession with biohacking and with this buttered coffee that can be problematic. Yeah, it all stems from this guy, Dave Asprey, bulletproof coffee guy, making up claims, just making up stuff. Says you can fast and just put butter in your coffee, even though it's like a bolus of 400, 500 calories a day when you could have just had protein and says you're going to do this and that. It's just another, he's just selling the dream, just like anything else. The purported the hype that comes from it, the, the benefits, alleged benefits, are just nonsense. So honestly, just like just drink black coffee. Or if you want some calories in the morning, just drink a protein shake with your black coffee. Don't drink butter or coconut oil or, 
or medium chain triglycerides in, in your coffee with the butter. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It'll fill you up. Just like it's a meal. It's you're not fasting actually. Yeah. So that that's stupid. It'll increase your LDL cholesterol. And I know there's people that would be like, Oh, LDL doesn't matter. And they, they just don't even know what they're talking about. Like I'm going to be the first me and my team who's actually, I've teamed up with keto guys who are a little bit more suspicious of the diet induced LDL increases uh, and atherosclerosis. I I'm on the side that, it probably increases atherosclerosis. It doesn't make any sense any other way. And they're on the side of, well, they're optimistic that it might not as much as we think anyway. So we're, we're going to be the first ones to study it in a cohort style. So we'll, we'll know a little bit more. But biohacking in general, the way I see it is, look, if you're, trying, if you're an elite athlete and you've got all of the basics down, it would be like focusing on, like if you're a wrestler, you, you focus on your stance, you focus on on a few good moves in the very basics. Then you start branching kind of different types of techniques and different moves, but you always get the basics down first. Same with any sport, same with football, whatever. Biohacking puts the cart before the horse, in my opinion, if you do not have every single other basic tenant principle of sports science, nutrition science down first. So if you're not paying attention to your energy balance, you're not paying attention to your macronutrient percentage distribution, you're not paying attention to the food composition, and you're not paying attention to hydration and nutrient timing slightly, it gets up in less priority the higher you go. You're not getting your sleep, and you're not periodizing your exercise in accordance with recovery and performance. And you start adding in these little supplements and little things here and there, unless they're anabolic steroids, I suppose, performance enhancing <laughs> drugs. And, you know, you can do a lot of different things, I guess. But what I see is a lot of alleged biohackers trying to almost get out of doing the hard work and consistency with the basics and substituting it with this biohacking. That's what I see. So if you have the basics down and you want to go, you know what? For example, women with their menstrual cycle, you get the follicular phase first, usually the first two weeks, and then you ovulate, and then you have the luteal phase, and then you have, which is two weeks, and then you have your mens, uh, menses, period. Well, you could look at, you know, there's some theoretical changes there. Your metabolism kind of increases in that uh, second two weeks, the luteal phase. So, yeah, but also your appetite increases. So maybe increasing your calories there is a good idea. To the whole cycle syncing approach. Uh, sport. Yeah, sports performance and, and uh, maybe even fat loss if it helps you stop you from binge eating or something like that due to your increased appetite. So to me, that's using science and I think someone would consider that biohacking, but I see people who do like the buttered coffee. It's like, man, that, that just gets away from the principles we know of good health and sport performance. It just because this guy who has no background in anything other than making money and marketing said it was a good idea and he made up a bunch of stuff. So like, I, I think it just really depends on what modality you're using and labeling as biohacking. So like some people may say turning off your screens at night and trying to get to bed early is biohacking. I would call that good sleep hygiene, <laughs> you know, whereas like other people, let's say, some people are like, yeah, you've got to take metformin, rapamycin, and some of these other supplements for longevity. They may call that biohacking, and I'd call that stupid. But let's take the science that we know and mechanisms, and maybe there is something to it. But I, I, biohacking, to me, is it's a marketing term. I think if something works well, I wouldn't call it it's – just, it's, just, it's a marketing term. I just that's, – that's the way they do it. They hype it up. That's what – that's – that's the reason Dave Asprey and the Bulletproof Coffee got so big is because, oh, we're biohacking. We're trying to find things about your metabolism, blah, 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 blah. And we're going to do these specific little dietary things and you make up stuff. The thing is that it just doesn't have any science to, to back it up. But that's kind of my opinion. I, I think some of the stuff that people do that they label as biohacking, it's, it's probably a good idea and fits along with the principles of, of good nutrition and for health and for performance. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I do appreciate what you said about putting the cart before the horse. And I think that 
the term biohacking is overused. It's marketed like it's really insane how people sort of use it to sell any kind of crazy supplement. It's really a hot word in marketing, especially in the health and fitness space. But I think that in certain instances, it can help. I mean, the, the way that I would describe biohacking is, is sort of, in a way, exploiting these evolutionarily preserved mechanisms in your DNA by applying cutting-edge science to derive some specific benefit. And I think that that comes once you, have, once you have a certain level of understanding of physiology and you have all these bases and the basics covered. Mm-hmm. So that's when I see that it's applicable. And I do think that it's overused and, and tossed around in a way that does, again, a disservice to what's really going on. And then something I wanted to discuss with you in addition to all this is what kind of people then should we listen to in the bio-optimization space? You know, what kind of experts really deserve the kind of that credit? Because for example, there's a lot of doctors that people look up to, but as you and I both know, there's so many doctors who don't understand the basics of exercise and lifestyle medicine to begin with, right? So who should we listen to when it comes to bio-optimization? Yeah, it's a good, <laughs> it's a good question. I don't know if I should name names, but I, my, right before the podcast, one of my best friends from high school texted me and said, what do you think of this guy? I was like, yeah, this guy sounds like a, a legit scientist and talks very smoothly Seems like they have some good info, but amongst like legit scientists, they're known as a huckster. And so a lot of these people, I would just make sure people are focusing on outcomes instead of mechanisms and they're being truthful. If something seems too good to be true, it probably is. So there are a bunch of people there. These people are making a lot of, lot of money, but there's a lot of, of these folks out there who are hyping up certain modalities ask them for outcome data. And I'm not talking about rats, I'm talking about humans, <laughs> outcomes over mechanisms. Always remember that they're going to come up with, God, there's a, there's a bunch of them on Twitter too. And they're, these people are making a lot of money, but, and they'll overhype mechanisms. You'll notice that if you pay attention to that, they focus on mechanistic data as opposed to outcome data, because it actually doesn't do anything in the long run. It just looks cool. It looks cool from a mechanistic standpoint. So I'd, I would pay attention to that red flag. I would pay attention to the way they talk about things. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on certain things, but in the end, we have certain modalities that we know are helpful in terms of performance and body composition and, and health. And if something seems like, wow, this new supplement, taking this is going to do X, Y, and Z, look at the X, Y, and Z. Are they outcomes? Usually not. And if you see that with supplements and certain things like, so for instance, here, here's an instance where when it comes to cardiovascular drugs, wow, this drug lowers LDL cholesterol by X, Y, Z. Okay, great. I'm a lipidologist. I, that sounds good. However, I don't, yeah, if it lowers LDL, fine. I want to know if it, if it decreases heart attacks. I want to know if it improves mortality. So there's certain things like that that I think you should pay attention to. Yeah, this, so like you said, uh, it improves the DNA methylation, all these little things, great. But is it actually adding years to your lifespan? Yeah. And so biologically, plausibility, yeah, you could look at some of these populations that seem to live the longest and they tend to do those things. So probably not a bad idea to do those things. Now, if there's a supplement that says, hey, you should take this because it does this, I don't know. I'm not going to bet everything the farm on it, especially if it's expensive. If it's cheap, doesn't seem to have any drawbacks, maybe not bad, but we've been duped before in terms of taking high levels of antioxidant types of stuff and looking at cancer outcomes. It's, it's interesting stuff because I know when you run the trial and you're like, oh shit, that didn't, that didn't go how we thought and it was actually harmful. So I, you know, as a doctor, I want to say, please do no harm. Most supplements are probably you know, benign, but you're wasting your money on some of the stuff. So I just, Outcomes over mechanism. If, if, I, if you can take anything from this, just look for outcomes. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. And I know that, you know, we're sort of at our, at our cutoff time. I'm wondering if you have a couple more minutes to answer just two more questions and I'll keep it brief. Is that all right with you? Sure. So question number one, what do you believe about sort of maintaining lifestyles that are consistent with 
our ancestral ways. You know, for example, waking up with the sun and going to bed when the sun goes down, maybe doing something like grounding, having some kind of activity surrounding our food intake, that sort of thing, sort of maintaining these ancestral ways of life. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's biological plausibility to to do that. Some very smart researchers are looking at our, our circadian rhythms and how we were kind of designed to eat and how our uh, glycemia and oxidation of fatty acids and all these different things work. So I would think getting sunlight in the morning, eating according to your, your clock, and that to simplify things, I eat evenly spaced, I think even evenly spaced meals, unless you work out at night and want to get a larger meal at night, I would otherwise eat mostly evenly spaced meals, probably don't eat your largest meal of the day right before bed. And I think if you follow that, you'll be fine. If you want to stop eating around seven o'clock, fine, or six o'clock or so. If you're going to eat after that and you're trying to lose fat and improve your health markers, probably make the meal before bed, like if you have to eat before bed because of hunger or whatever, or muscle retention, eat mostly protein-rich food, non-fat Greek yogurt, that type of thing. That's what I would do. But I, I, think it's, I don't think it's a bad idea, honestly. Great. And last question for you is, what supplements do you take for performance? Creatine, pretty much always creatine. I have a bunch of protein powders. I think it's, I'm thinking of anything else. Actually, NAC, I forgot. I got to order my K. For none of that, K2, vitamin K2, I, I take. I actually have to reorder that just thinking about it because I was like, I think I'm missing a pill in the morning. <laughs> I take four capsules of my creatine and it's five grams of, of creatine every morning. That's about it. I mean, everything else, you know, caffeine, I drink some coffee before working out. So caffeine is, is a pretty standard thing. But I don't tolerate beta alanine for whatever reason. And it's not the prickliness sensitivity skin sensitivity something about it makes me tired so i don't i don't actually use it i've tried it so many different times and it just makes me kind of feel spacey it's weird well other than that that's it stay <laughs> hydrated eat enough food i really like that the uh outcomes versus mechanisms and i just want to say thank you so much for joining us on this episode it's been really special hosting you and just want to say you know i've deeply appreciated your content and the way that you share everything you know in such a friendly and inviting way <laughs> for some people. I know some people get offended with your content, but I really do appreciate some it. Some people get offended, but that's all right. That's all right. Yes, <laughs> thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.